Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. In I'm a Virgo, a 13-foot-tall young black man who's grown up completely isolated makes his first clumsy steps out into the world despite his overprotective parents' misgivings. The world he finds certainly has its delights, friends and weed and love and sex, but it's bound up in the kind of systemic racism and social injustice that forces him to question his naive faith in the law and in those who enforce it. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about the new series I'm a Virgo on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV isn't just good, it's brilliant. With exceptional television from around the world. Their romances are more charming, their mysteries cozier, their noirs more gripping, and their comedies cleverer. More clever? Oh, you get it. Acorn TV is brilliant stories told brilliantly. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. So, in a nutshell, Acorn TV. Brilliant. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, streaming acclaimed original series you won't find anywhere else. With powerful performances from Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, Bella Ramsey, Matthew McFadden, and more. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is writer and contributor to NPR Music, Letitia Harris. Hey, Letitia, welcome back. Hi, thank you. Also with us is TV critic for The New Yorker, Ingu Kang. Hey, Ingu. Hello, hello. I'm a Virgo was created by filmmaker Boots Riley, the writer-director of 2018's Sorry to Bother You, and you can tell. The story of naive giant Cootie is quintessential Riley. Trippy visuals, practical effects, earthy humor, and a clear-eyed activist take on race and class in America that's buoyed by righteous fury. Jarrell Jerome plays Cootie. As I'm a Virgo opens, Cootie is 19 years old and 13 feet tall. He's been kept in hiding by his parents because they're afraid of what the world will do to him. But Cootie is a mythic hero, so what happens next is inevitable. He leaves his Oakland home, meets companions, falls in love, and refuses the call to adventure a couple times before finally taking action. If that makes I'm a Virgo sound like some lofty fable, it's not. For all its fanciful trappings, the world of systemic evil it depicts, corporate greed, social injustice, for-profit healthcare, police brutality, is anything but mythical. Riley wrote about half of the season's episodes and directed all of them. I'm a Virgo is streaming now on Prime Video. All of the episodes are up, and we'll be talking about all of them, I think. We should also note that Amazon supports NPR and pays to distribute some of our content. Ingu, let me start with you. What'd you think? 
Oh, boy. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a lot here. Yes. I think this is the type of show that if you love television, it's the kind of show that you're really happy exists. Okay. It's idiosyncratic. It's authorial. It's ambitious. It's funny. It's clever. It's novel. You will absolutely see something you haven't seen before. Visually, it's very fun to look at. Mm-hmm. It is also deeply messy. The characters are thin. The pacing is off. It is so didactic. Yep. So, you know, I think this is like one of those rare shows where the question isn't even, did I like it? Did you sort of like get something out of it? It feels more like the metric that you need to use. Uh-huh. Interesting. Interesting. It's interesting you say the characters are thin. I think that was the biggest highlight for me, the way they were able to make each character, their motivations, their backstories as then as they were portrayed, I feel like the acting between all the main characters was really moving. And I think that was my highlight in lieu of a very messy plot. Okay, interesting. See, I'm coming at this from a very different perspective, I think. I mean, I thought this was a really thoughtful show. I thought it was funny. I thought there was an urgency to it, which we'll talk about the didacticism, I think. I think this is maybe, though, the most lived-in, fully realized superhero story I can remember watching because here's the thing. They thrive on hand-waving, right? On, don't worry about it. Just go with it. He flies. Physics schmizics. <laughs> there is no physics schmizics here. Mm-hmm. Cody's life, the way it's depicted here, the way he exists in the world, the way he moves through the world, everything is the so... The way he smells in the world. <laughs> my point. My Everything is so tactile and of the body, all about eating and the stinking and the pooping. And there is one sex scene. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> it was done with practical effects, right? Force perspective camera blocking and force perspective set design. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking, this is so well done and so funny. And I now realize what it would have looked like if Frodo and Gandalf had gotten really freaky on that card at the beginning of Lord of the Rings. I now know what it looks like. I feel like we really got a peek into Glenn's brain just now. Well, see, here's my thing. I'm talking about how fully realized, how fully considered it is. There's a character who who exists at super speed, right? What we get here is the horror of that. How, yeah. how slowly the world unfolds around them, how bored they are, how how the world is unsurprising to them. I really dug that. That's what I mean about how fully thought it is. But let's talk about the didacticism. Well, okay. Here's the thing. There is a lot going on in these seven episodes, ideological-wise. You know, you have Foucault, you have Ralph Ellison, you have Uh Marxism, you have a lot of different ideas going on here. And I think Riley, to his credit, really just says, I'm going to make a show that reflects all the things I think about, all the things I'm concerned with, my leanings, and doesn't really care much (laughs) if his audience is either following along or agrees or has any kind of reaction to it, which I love. But I think with how much is being put out there in terms of political thought, everything just gets a little uh, wonky. It's not very clear, but... I think it's very open to interpretation still, even with how heavy-handed all of Riley's political leanings are, you know? I think there's sort of this, like, scattershot quality to a lot of his critiques, right? There is, like, a subplot about private health care. There's a subplot about how the lights keep going out because <laughs> if you live in the Bay Area, PG&E, uh, <laughs> our electric company, just like a gigantic mess. There is a whole subplot about, you know, the exploitation of black bodies in fashion and sports and capitalism in general. There is also this other subplot about like the fear of that same black body and like the fetishization of that black body. If you sort of like take them in their totality, you're sort of like, wow, this guy really has a lot of thoughts. 
But he's always sort of like not necessarily the person you would go for. If you want nuance, if you want sort of like a deeper dive into why these things happen, I don't think I'm really revealing much when I say that there is a really, really big, important speech. And it's just like it's one of those things where people are like, wow, your speech is so powerful. I will transform everything about myself. And the idea that like if you just like give someone a two-minute lecture about systemic injustice and they're like wow you're right like i'm going to like change everything about myself it's just like the most facile kind of liberal fantasy yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i get that but i thought that that was the character's superpower like we'll call it mark explaining right just just <laughs> laying down communist theory about the crisis of capitalism and having it resonate with people like that's like making the speech is not the superpower the fact that it resonates with people is the fantasy is the superpower capitalism necessitates unemployment and poverty which necessitates illegal business the regulation of which is what causes violence it stops everything dead whenever it happens and it is clearly the most dogmatic didactic boots riley mouthpiece boots riley proxy mm. that could be true it also can be fun as hell i found it fun as hell you guys didn't though. No, it was fun. Don't get me wrong. It was fun. I just think in the midst of all this fun, there's nothing particularly revealing about the ideas presented in I'm a Virgo. So I think there's not much nuance to what's being presented. So Boots Riley has to jump through a lot of different things and doesn't take the time to delve into anything very deeply. And I think while it's a very fun time, it's not very eye-opening brain stimulating (laughs) in terms of the political sense. However, I did like the jokes. I thought they were hilarious. I thought that when he was going surface level, what he achieved with that was great. Interesting. In this like big, important speech, there is sort of this like connection between unemployment and capitalism Mm. and why capitalism needs unemployment. And then like, why capitalism and unemployment create crime. And then there's just a sort of like hand-waving about like all of the ill effects of crime. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to sound like the (laughs) villain in this story who is like, how dare you do something wrong? But I'm also like, you know, crime actually has a lot of ill effects in our society. Like, that is like an actual real thing. Mm-hmm. And so to look at it from such a macro systemic level that you're sort of like getting away from like the actual lived in experience of what it feels like to be in this underclass, because the people in that underclass are the people who are most likely to be a victim of that crime. Mm-hmm. I was just like, Can we have one other color that is not black or white with, Mm -hmm. like, all of these analyses? You also have to think about it, like, the fact that the main antagonist of this story is a Jeff Bezos-Elon Musk hybrid, one of which is distributing this story as well. And, you know, Amazon does have problems with their labor unions. That's something that's being addressed in this story as well. And I know that Boots Riley has gone on record saying that this wasn't his first distribution company choice, but that's where it ended up. Mm -hmm. I think the work that's being done in this show maybe is not to the level that Boots Riley thinks it will be. No, I I get that. And there is a disconnect here because the real hero of the show is uh, Jones, who's the community organizer played by Kara Young. That character espoused an embodied little guy, and yet it is streaming on Amazon. There is a disconnect, and it extends to the fact that Walton Goggins plays the media mogul Jay Whittle, who is a comic book writer 
who adopts the identity of one of his creations, the hero. And he's kind of, you know, the climactic villain of the piece, although the true villain is, of course, society. <laughs> it's what if Stanley were playing Batman? And I was so in with this show for so long, but there is a distancing effect. And I think it manifests for you guys a little bit different than it does me. It's a visual weirdness that leaches into everything. So filmmakers like Michel Gondry and Jean-Pierre Genet and Spike Jones, which Riley really reminds me of, mm. there's a lo-fi funkiness to everything. Yeah, a rough hewness even. Yeah, exactly. And that makes a difference in your dramatic priorities because all of those filmmakers are interested in getting at truth, but they're not interested in getting at truth through naturalism, right? Through being purely representational. It's very subjective. It's idiosyncratic, as you say, Ingu. And that extends to the dialogue. There is always, I felt, that the dialogue was not so much heightened, but it was theatrical. It was performative. You can always hear the writing. And I thought that was a stylistic choice, that kind of mannered quality. Did you guys pick up on that? Or is that, guys, what you guys are talking about when you say it feels thin? I mean, it's one of those things where <laughs> it's a little hard to tell, like, is it mannered or is it just, like, maybe not the best sort of writing? Stiff. Yeah. I really yeah. hear you about sort of, like, that theatrical quality of, like, the visualness and sort of, like, that distancing effect. There is a lot of stuff here going on visually. There are, as you said, puppets. There is a bunch of animation. There's a bunch of different types of animation. Yep. It was a little bit confusing, I will also say, because this is a story that purportedly takes place in the now. You know, there are cell phones. There is a very, very teeny tiny cell phone in Jerome Jerome's hand. <laughs> and yet, at the same time, the TV that he watches, I don't know what era that is from. Is that from the 70s? Is that from the 80s? Mm -hmm. It's like, me. Maybe from like the early 90s, but I was a 90s kid and I didn't really recognize what he was going for. Mm -hmm. And so there is also this sort of like out of time quality to the media ecosphere, right? And so it was, I think, just like a little bit harder to place the main character, Cootie. And then because it was sort of like hard to place where he was coming from and he was sort of this like weird, naive, essentially homeschooled kid was just sort of like really hard for me to like cotton onto his coming of age story mm. because like the story warrants like him discovering what the truth about the world is. He's just right. like a little bit too innocent, a little bit too unquestioning. You know, I wanted him to be safe <laughs> and I wanted to know where his sort of like messianic ideas about like him being born so that he could save the world in some way like I wanted to know where that was going to take him but I can't say I really related to him fundamentally as a character because he felt so blank to me hmm. Ingo that's so interesting what you say about the tv I actually have a ton of thoughts about where that tv side is coming from because for most of the show I was like I don't know why he has to be so big like the show does not rely on him being super big a lot of the times but I realized that and it's like He's the elephant in the room, and the show itself is about addressing the elephant in the room in the sense that we need to investigate what we've been taught our whole lives. And when I think about that TV set that you're mentioning, that out-of-time set, I think about, you know, the era of Walter Cronkite, when everyone's—the family is gathered around this TV set— and it's giving the same message to every single home in America. And that is the time where TV is just, that's our God, you know? Mm -hmm. The act of TV in the show is very important. You know, Cootie learns the real world by experiencing it, but he thinks he knows things by TV. In comic books, obviously. And I think the idea of that TV set being the most, like, out-of-time thing in this whole show is to call back to that time where programming 
by TV was all we had. And, you know, we still have programming by TV, but it's a little more nuanced. It's a little more, you can get more opinions, all these things. But like going back to the idea of like, there was a time in America when everyone was receiving the same exact programming. I think that's what the TV set is calling to. Mm -hmm. I think that's fine. And I think it sort of makes sense that, you know, Cootie's mom is sort of like, I don't really believe in this as sort of like a more politically radical person, but like, I really want him to have his fun. And that sort of compromise also felt really lived in, as Glenn said earlier. I, and I do think that like a lot of these critiques of propaganda on TV and sort of like the analogous role that comic books play, I think all of that stuff, you know, if it's not necessarily new, I think it's done effectively. I guess we're in such a moment right now of larger cultural, if not a quite like a backlash, this sort of like re-examination of comic book culture and its conservative impulses. The Boys also on Amazon is like a very good example of that particular political dissection. And so maybe, you know, this show is coming just like a little bit too late for me in that whole cycle for it to like really feel fresh. I understood where it was coming from. And yet I was like, Okay, but <laughs> do you have anything else? Like, tell me more about this power company. At least that's new. I'm going to push back a little bit because I think the show pushes back on this idea that the show is a critique of comic book culture. Because everybody around him is saying, why do you read that? Why do you read that? That guy's a fascist. And he makes a point to say there's this hero on the page. Mm. And then there's the hero in the real world. And what I would say is I think what the show is saying there is that when superheroes get away from their admittedly childlike beginnings – the fact that they're ideals and you bring them into the real world or you bring them into a show like The Boys, which does that kind of nihilistic, see, any ideal is corrupt and it becomes a lot less interesting to me. And the show is going out of its way to say, when you take this comic book character off the page and put him in the streets, he's just another authoritarian tool. Right. But we also have that same character espousing the fact that all art is propaganda. Now, of course, he's a fascist, so he would say that. <laughs> That's a very fascistic way of thinking. But yet this show stops dead to give us lectures on Marx and Engels. So, so, you know, it's part of the mess. I mean, it felt to me like that was one of the rare moments where the villain spoke the truth. And okay. like, that really was Boots Riley sort of like using his words. I mean, like, literally what is this show, but propaganda. Exactly. That's that's what I'm trying to struggle with. And the fact that the show is so messy means that I think I'm going to keep struggling with it. You guys want to talk about the sex scene? Yes. I mean, I, I loved it. It was nine minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I think a nine-minute sex scene that's that hilarious and full of practical effects is golden. And the Remy Wolf song in the background was perfect. Mm -hmm. I think that's the Absolutely. best sex scene I've seen on screen in at least 10 years. Certainly the funniest. I guess we should know that the sex scene is between the 13-foot giant and a, a normal-sized woman and sort of like the travails of that. I think, I don't know, maybe if it had been like half the length, I wouldn't have minded as much. Okay. Half the length as it were. Uh, so <laughs> that scene is answering a question that immediately presents itself when you first see these two flirting in a way that like a lot of the show kind of upends expectations. Mm. It's playing with those expectations. And I was glad to see that we finally got to see, okay, so here's the logistics. Here's how we do it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we want to know what you think about I'm a Virgo. Find us at Facebook.com slash PCHH. And that brings us to the end of our show. Letitia Harris, Ingu Kang, thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you. And you know what? 
Uh, see, we didn't even get to that. I forgot about that. This episode is produced by Ramel Wood and Mike Katzif and edited by Jessica Reedy. And Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you all for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR.